Good afternoon. Welcome to the Eco News Report. This week, your hosts are from the North Coast Environmental Center with Executive Director Larry Glass and Admin and Development Director Bella Waters. The Eco News Report is an exclusive feature of KHSU brought to you by the North Coast Environmental Center, publisher of our regional environmental newspaper, Eco News. Don't forget you can find this show and other KHSU public affairs shows on the audio archives page at khsu.org. Today we'll be providing brief snippets of current news that pertain to various environmental topics, such as the Nordic Aqua Farms, located at the old Samoa Pulp Mill, Arcata Village Project, Humboldt Bay, and current climate change news. So Larry, what's our first story? Well, I think the one that's got a lot of people buzzing here locally is this proposed fish-rearing plant out at the old Samoa Pulp Mill location. There's been some news stories about it indicating that the Humboldt Harbor and Recreation Conservation District has already struck a deal with these people for some sort of long-term lease. The lease apparently gives them the rights to 30 of the 72 acres that are there on the site for the next three to five decades. So this is this raised a lot of red flags with folks who feel like this should have been vetted in the community before they start entering into any kind of long-term lease agreements with people because there's a lot of questions mm-hmm. about this. Now, full disclosure, the people from Nordic Aqua Farms came to the North Coast Environmental Center and held an information session with all of the people that are part of our conservation committee. So the various environmental groups were all represented there in the room, and lots of questions got asked. Certainly there was no green light given by any of us, just a lot of questions, questions that we want more answers to. Mm. So after that meeting, a number of people, including Jen Kalt of Humble Baykeeper, did some due diligence and started fact-checking <laughs> a lot of the statements that were made at our meeting. And what we're, what we're learning is that while essentially they're getting their facts somewhat right, when we really drill down on the things they're telling us, they're either unproven or really exaggerated, Mm. or in some cases, just not the case. Right. So the red flags are up for us, and we'll definitely be monitoring this one closely as this develops over a period of time. But they have an operation in Maine that a sister group of Humble Baykeeper, it's a waterkeeper group, I believe, Mm -hmm. is, is monitoring, And then there's some operation in Florida that we're going to be watching as well. So we will keep you informed as this one develops. Mm -hmm. So what else is happening on the Bay? Well, interesting you should ask that because as we saw recently here, the, the Harbor District and the fishing people, and there's a lot of concerned people because the shoaling that routinely takes place at the mouth of the bay has gotten real bad again. In fact, some people are saying it's the worst they've seen it in a long, long time. The angle I wanted to take with our listeners is to remind everybody that this is Humboldt Bay, which it's you can call it a bay. I mean, that's even sort of loose. I mean, as near as we can tell from historical record, this was a lagoon that periodically would open to the ocean 
and close back off again to the ocean. And like so many of the lagoons that we have here. This, the mouth of this was forced open about 100 years ago, and it's been used for ocean commerce since then, fishing fleets and shipping and, and whatnot since then. But of late, we have the Humboldt Bay Harbor Working Group who wants to market this body of water as a deep water port <laughs> for, for industrial shipping from all over the world. Particularly with their east-west railroad boondoggle, they were wanting to have giant containers coming in with, you know, loads of merchandise from probably China. Right. So, So framing it like that, when you look at the problems that they're having, just keeping it open for fishing boats... <laughs> <laughs> it, it it really is kind of ridiculous to refer to this as a deep water port. Now, if the federal government wants to station a full-time dredge for Humboldt Bay here and, and subsidize that, I suppose they could probably keep the bay dredged so that most of the year these deep draft cargo containers ships mm-hmm. could come in. But realistically, no. No. You know, and, and the federal government's not going to spend that kind of money on Little Humboldt Bay because there's big port down to our south that's right. already got all the facilities in place. So it's time for people to accept that Humboldt Bay is what it is, you know, mm-hmm. and it, it if we can keep it open for the fishing people, well, great. You know, and we don't want it to be a hazard, so people are risking their lives going in and out. But but at the same time, to be trying to sell it as a deep water port is pretty disingenuous. Right. So that's the take that I wanted to bring forward about the Humboldt Bay shoaling. Yes, it's serious. Yes, it's dangerous. And we do need some help from the federal government to get their dredge in here so that we can make it safe for our fishing fleet to get in and out of here. But Let's be real about what the bay is capable of. Mm-hmm. So, Bella, what's happened with the village project? Well, Larry, the controversial housing development known as The Village, a proposed large-scale apartment complex just north of Arcata Elementary, is back. Earlier this month, Arcata City Council voted unanimously to move forward with the review of the revised project. The developers have now submitted a revised version of the plans, which include the much-requested mixture of student housing and open market units. What's that mix, Bella? So the mix will be, I think it was at 60% student housing and 40% the open market. That is what I heard as well. Okay, yeah. And then the design is larger than the most recent version and includes solar panels, a children's park for a more family-friendly atmosphere, and HSU is no longer involved in the project. Aha. Uh-huh. Yes. So the project will need to go through further review before it can move forward. And the council also directed the planning commission to consider vacating St. Louis Road during development, which I guess is a step necessary for the project to move forward. By vacating it, not maintaining it, and letting the construction people just make free use of it? I'm not entirely sure. It's think- kind of vague there. Well, if it's just for the t- terms of the construction, that's what it sounds like. Okay. So, yeah, well, that's pretty interesting. But, you know, a lot of people thought that they would walk away when 
the city council made those demands, it looks like they didn't walk away. Right, yes, no. It's obvious they really want to pursue it. Well, just a little further from the bay, right along Highway 101, we have the strip of eucalyptus trees that some people view as an invasive species and other people they're very dear to their hearts and represent a historical and scenic stretch of Highway 101. So I think a lot of people had resigned themselves to the idea that we're going to have to sacrifice some of the eucalyptus trees at the north end of the of the strip there right. along the trail so that the trail could be completed because everybody wants the trail. And, right. And, and we all agree with that. But now, in typical Caltrans fashion... They want to take all the eucalyptus trees, even though the eucalyptus trees further south are are not going to impact the trail because the trail is going to follow the waterfront and go around that old sawmill there. So, and they they have managed. If if you've, I finally got a chance to look at a before and after picture from about fifteen years ago at the trees and look at the trees now. They have been whittling away at those trees for a while now, and they don't look nearly as healthy as they looked 15 years ago because they've been limbing them and limbing them, and they don't even provide the scenic break that they used to provide of seeing that ugly mill operation on the other side of it. So it looks like they've been setting the stage for a while for this full removal of the the eucalyptus trees. So... If you're one of those folks that really, really likes those eucalyptus trees and doesn't want to see them all removed, time to get a hold of Caltrans and let them know that you're not happy with them. Right. Well, Bella, what's going on over in the city of Eureka? Well, the city of Eureka recently released a press release announcing that they are going to have a local solution to a global problem. They are launching a new local glass recycling program to address the issue of China not accepting recycled goods from the U.S., So currently, glass containers are differentiated by CRV and non-CRV. CRV glass should continue to go to Humble Waste Management Authority for redemption or placed in Recology Recycling Totes. This new program is specifically for non-CRV glass. So there's going to be three bins across Eureka, which are all free and accessible. They're going to be at the Municipal Auditorium, Highland Park, and the Adorney Center. So the program will utilize a volunteer city beautification team led by the Uplift Eureka program to service and empty the bins. And then the glass is going to be recycled by Mercer Fraser Company in road construction aggregate projects. Interesting. Coming up with some solutions. Well, also in the city of Eureka, they have introduced a transportation plan for the 101 corridor that's getting a lot of people's attention. As we have seen through the sort of willy-nilly development that that was allowed to take place in the 80s and the early 90s along South Broadway, it's just congested every afternoon pretty pretty severely Mm -hmm. at the south end of town. But lately there's been a lot more congestion at the north end of town. And the The city is now proposing that they're going to add a third lane in the northern section of 4th Street, or 101 South, to try and alleviate some of this 
congestion. It will involve restriping the pavement to three lanes and somehow end up with enough room for a five-foot bike lane on one side of the street. After we got heard about this, I decided to go for a drive through there just to check that out. And I think that's a, a, a little challenging in a couple of spots there. I, I can see where there was a few places where it was obvious that they could do that and it would make an improvement. There was other places where it looks like it's going to get pretty skinny with that configuration. So this is going to be interesting to see, but you know, they do have an issue there. I mean, the, the traffic of an afternoon is backing up towards Arcade all the way past Harper's Four now kind of on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So if some of that of course, that's unsafe right. when that starts happening. So if this can alleviate some of that congestion, then, you know, and, and, but part of the selling feature is this relieving the danger to pedestrians. And at their November 18th meeting, a city council person, Natalie Arroyo, wondered aloud how that would be any safer for pedestrians. And Colin Fisk of our associate member group's Coalition for Responsible Transportation Priorities was not sure that adding more traffic lanes was a long-term solution either. (laughs) So that's interesting. You know, the NEC doesn't have a particular interest one way or the other, and not one other than, you know, supporting Colin's concerns. But further down in the press release, we find that they want to punch 4th Street through the balloon track and connect it up with Coster. Now, for those of you that are new arrivals to the area or have been in a long, deep sleep, (laughs) the balloon track is a controversial piece of land that our old buddy Rob Arkley wanted to construct a, a giant shopping center on back in the late 90s, early 2000s and it got a lot of blowback wound up causing me to run for city council in (laughs) in eureka so that idea then was to connect waterfront drive and make it go all the way through to the very south end eureka and that got shot down both by the coastal commission and by one of the easement holders of of the palco marsh which was the audubon society that didn't they wouldn't sign off on it. So that got foiled then. But the balloon track is a wetlands. It is contaminated. It has never been cleaned up. You know, we could have sympathy for somebody buying a piece of property that was contaminated and not knowing it. But when Rob Arkley bought that from Union Pacific, it was fully disclosed to him the extent of the contamination, and he bought it anyway. And since he's owned it, he's wanted to develop all kinds of things on it, but he's never wanted to do the cleanup on it. So that's what needs to happen first. Mm-hmm. So if the city's really serious about moving this forward, they need to get the owner of the land to clean it up. Either that or they need to get a grant themselves from the state of California or the feds, get Union Pacific back in the picture because they're still on the hook for cleaning it up as well. And get the get the place cleaned up once and for all because it's continuing to leach metals and dioxin and whatnot into the bay, and it needs to be cleaned up. So before they start making big plans to pave a wetlands and do all that, they should get the site cleaned up. Mm-hmm. 
Is there a public hearing about this? Yes, yeah, as a matter of fact, Bella, thanks for pointing that out. You're right. This whole thing will be discussed tonight, Thursday, February 28th at 5.30 at the Warfinger Building on One Marina Way in Eureka, where Caltrans planners and traffic engineers will be there with diagrams and drawings and prepared to answer your questions. So that's tonight. That would be tonight. Yes. All right. Well, another point of interest is that there were at least 45 confirmed whale entanglements in 2018, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. A pending lawsuit by the Center for Biological Diversity could see the State Department of Fish and Wildlife held liable for the entanglements. The Center for Biological Diversity sued the State Department of Fish and Wildlife in October 2017 when the number of whale entanglements was skyrocketing. The peak came in 2016 when there were 71 confirmed whale entanglements. Preliminary 2018 numbers show there were 45 and they are reflected through November 28, 2018, and are not finalized. Among the 2018 reports was an August 2018 humpback whale who was reported entangled off the coast of Eureka. And according to the Center for Biological Diversity spokesman, it's difficult to trace the lines back to a source, but the majority of the gear that is identified is Dungeness crabbers in California. The Department of Fish and Wildlife would not comment on the pending litigation. So the two parties have until March 13th to work out their differences and report back to the judge. If no settlement is reached, the judge will issue a finding. Well, Bella, in Trinity County news, it saddens me greatly to relay this, but after more than three decades of state and federal agencies adhering to Trinity County's anti-herbicide use, Basically, Trinity County declared herbicide use in the county as a public nuisance. And so all of the agencies, including Caltrans, for the last three decades have obeyed that and not have not sprayed in Trinity County. But now Caltrans, using the excuse of fire danger, has decided that they're going to start spraying mm-hmm. along the roadsides in Trinity County. This has got people, a word of this only, you know, has only been out for a couple of days. So the public is just now beginning to find out about it. By the time this program airs, there'll have been a public meeting in Trinity County that they've managed to move to the smallest location possible so that hardly anybody will be able to attend. But we'll be able to tell you more about this when we do our next Eco News Roundup. But it comes on the heels of a news story that came out about the Oregon Department of Transportation having sprayed a weed killer called Aminocyclofractochlor, or ACP. And apparently this herbicide, which was sprayed originally in 2012, all of a sudden they started discovering that pine trees all along the highways where this herbicide was used start dying. And they couldn't figure out why are all these pine trees dying. It wasn't because of drought. And so they started testing them and and determining that over 1,400 ponderosa pine trees along the highway, some of them that were old growth, like centuries-old pine trees, had been killed by this roadside spraying by the Oregon Department of Transportation. 
So I don't know when these these agency groups will ever figure out that people don't want them spraying poisons along the highways. They don't work very well. You have to keep coming back and spraying over and over and over again. It pollutes everything. As we know here in Northwest California, all water runs downhill. (laughs) That is a law of physics, particularly in Trinity County, where people use water from creeks as drinking water. They get their drinking water from creeks. And the river, the Trinity River, is a precious resource with fish in it. All of this stuff is washing downhill into the rivers. So bad news out of Oregon. And because of it, Oregon is now looking at changing their regulations about roadside spraying of poisons. And we'll hopefully know more about that in coming months when we are doing this show. Gee, Larry, that's a, that's a big bummer. So do you have any good news? Well, actually, for a, for a rare occasion, I actually do have some good oh, news. Good. It was 50 years ago that DDT had pushed the peregrine falcon and the American bald eagle to the brink of extinction. But because of progressive action at the time, DDT was withdrawn off the marketplace in 1969, and it took a while for the accumulated residues of all the chemicals that had been used to to dissipate and become less potent. And that took about five or six years. So by 1975, the population of peregrine falcons had gone sunk to a low of 324 nesting pairs. Mm. But I'm happy to report that now the peregrine falcon is no longer on the endangered species list. It's thriving, and you, you find peregrine falcons in the wild again. And this is what taking proactive action timely action can make a huge difference and so let's learn the lesson from ddt with all these other roadside spray chemicals that they're using and let's stop using that let's put people to work clearing the brush along the roadsides well right now bella as you're i'm sure well aware of since we just had to wade through the deep water to get here today to do this show we are experiencing an atmospheric river condition right now. And so this is an interesting story because this happens several times a year, usually along the Pacific West Coast. And it particularly seems to come into effect when we're having a weak El Nino, which this year is also a weak El Nino. But they have had a hard time explaining it to the public what to expect when they see the atmospheric river conditions sort of setting up. And so they've come up with a new rating system to help them and the public understand what an upcoming atmospheric river might unleash. Researchers unveiled an atmospheric river scale to rank its severity and impacts from Category 1, weak, to Category 5, exceptional. Without a scale, they've had no way to objectively communicate to the public how strong a storm or how weak a storm would be. So atmospheric rivers flow through the sky in the upper atmosphere about a mile above the ocean surface and may extend across thousands of miles of ocean to the coast, bringing some routine rain, but sometimes some really intense rain, carrying as much water as 15 Mississippi rivers. 
The series of storms striking land can arrive for days and occasionally weeks on end. 1964, and that flood is a classic atmospheric river that happened after a snow event. Mm. So anyways, that's interesting. So I don't know when we'll start being told. (laughs) Right, category five. They didn't tell us which category (laughs) this one was, but this one seems like three or four. I'd agree, yep. Okay. And then another interesting climate story that we saw this week was the comparison, the lessons to be learned from the little ice age that happened in the 17th century. A lot of people assume when they think back about the little ice age that it was just cold. Mm -hmm. And certainly overall it was colder, but it also was in a period of extreme weather that lasted for 100 years. So whenever, whether it gets hotter or whether it gets colder, it creates extreme weather conditions. And so anyways, the people at the time, this was during Shakespeare's time, and the religious authorities all thought this was God punishing (laughs) humans for their poor behavior. And I can't disprove that theory. (laughs) (laughs) That may be happening today as well. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, and and other climate news, and this I found this one particularly interesting. We've all been hearing the tragic details of what's going on in the country of Venezuela. I had not heard the connection, though, between climate change and the political upheaval in Venezuela. Now, we're not saying that it's the cause of the unrest, but it's what the military likes to refer to sometimes as a force multiplier. Mm-hmm. So it, it, to explain that further, it's like when there's an already existing condition and then something comes along to magnify that or to exacerbate it. Well, that's what a prolonged drought in Venezuela has done. Venezuela has gotten 50 to 65 percent less than the average rainfall for the last five or six years. And it's it's really put a stress on the sort of feeble infrastructure that, that existed for providing water for the country's people and and its and its industry. So when national security and defense agencies call climate a threat multiplier, that's what they mean. So when you have political unrest and then you have a, a huge drought where people are having a hard time even living or they're having to flee as refugees because of the drought, and then they're also meeting up with people that are fleeing as refugees because of the political unrest, then you have pretty much a perfect storm. Right. So. Okay. Well, before we end, the NEC would like to invite you to join us for our third annual spaghetti fundraiser with Kingfoot on March 9th. Tickets and more information is available on our website at yournec.org. Also, a reminder that Friday, March 22nd, is the deadline for the Godwood Day Student Bird Art Contest and Nature Writing Contest, both co-sponsored by Redwood Region Audubon and Friends of the Arcata Marsh. Over $500 in prizes will be awarded at the festival in mid-April. A flyer with complete rules is posted at www.rras.org and can be picked up at the Arcata Marsh Interpretive Center, 569 South G Street in Arcata. This has been the Eco News Report with Bella Waters and Larry Glass, and we've been your hosts for the past half hour. You can find more information about the issues we've discussed on the NEC website, 
www.yournec.org. If you'd like to replay this interview or share it with others, you can go to the public affairs page on the KHSU website at khsu.org, where these programs are archived for two weeks after they air. Previous shows are posted on the NEC's website. If you have any questions or comments about this program, please call KHSU's listener comment line at 826-6089. The Eco News Report is produced for KHSU, located at Humboldt State University in cooperation with the North Coast Environmental Center. Many thanks to Fred McLaughlin for engineering. Join us again for the next Eco News Report. Eco News Report.